Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and in this interview series, I'm talking to extraordinary people who are living their dreams. It's my hope that their stories will inspire you to live your own dreams. So let's get started. It's January, the start of a new year, a time when we have set and are eager to accomplish our goals. What a perfect month, then, to be speaking with my next guest, Dory Clark. Dory is a motivational speaker, business coach, and the author of a book called Reinventing You. Are you starting to hear why I'm excited? This is a person who can help us get to where we want to be. Dory's latest book, Stand Out, was just named by Forbes as one of the top 10 business books of 2016. Dory's a frequent contributor to Time, Entrepreneur, and the Harvard Business Review. She teaches business administration at Duke, has been twice named by Huffington Post as 100 Must Follow on Twitter, and speaks to clients including Google, the Gates Foundation, and the World Bank. And we get to hear from her now. Dory, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you, Jessica. So I loved your book, Reinventing You, and for those listening, I can't recommend it enough. And there's a line in it that says, the secret is realizing that sometimes the path isn't linear. And I think that from doing my research for this interview, your own path hasn't been so linear, and I want to learn about it and how you got here. So let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born and where did you grow up? I grew up in Pinehurst, North Carolina, which is the golf capital of the world. If anyone listening is a golfer, you've probably heard of it. If not, it is a fairly insignificant blip about 90 minutes south of Raleigh-Durham. Do you play golf? No. My great rebellion in life, because my parents moved there in order to play golf, was that I decided I would not play golf. (laughs) So what did you do growing up? And what were your aspirations? Did you always know you wanted to get into this career of business or to do something else? I really didn't think that I would have a business career per se. I am, however, doing most of the things that I wanted to do when I was a kid. The trouble was that I really had to invent the kind of job that I wanted to have. And it was immensely frustrating to me that there wasn't a clear pathway. I didn't know how to get there. I knew that I liked writing. I liked speaking. When I when I was in college, I actually made a list of the qualities that I wanted to have in a future job, which is one of the things that at career services they tell you to do. They say, make a list of the things you like. And then from that, you can come up with what your ideal career is. I remember the top two things on my list of things that I liked to do and wanted to have in a future career were reading the newspaper and giving people my opinion. Somehow I've actually managed to have a career like that. But but the truth is there have been a lot of twists and turns because there was not uh, a very clear template for how to have the kind of entrepreneurial job that I ended up with. So let's go back to college where you're talking about making that list. Where did you go to school? I graduated from Smith College in Western Mass. Although I actually transferred there, I started my college career at Mary Baldwin College in Virginia, which had a program that was a early college entrance program. And so I was able to go there and start college when I was 14, which was a a great boon to me. And I was pretty eager to leave Pinehurst. So that sounded like an, an excellent deal. 
you went to college at age 14? I did. How did, how did that happen? Does, is that even legal? <laughs> I've never heard of that. Well, it, it, it is legal. Um, although, interestingly, I was in a private school, so my parents just didn't enroll me for the next year. But actually, my peers who were also in the program, at the time there were about 50 other girls in the program. It was just for girls. Many of them who were in public schools actually had to sign dropout forms, which is fairly ironic because they were dropping out in order to go to college. I don't, to this day, have a high school diploma. Um, I didn't realize that it kind of wasn't ultimately necessary. Uh, I have a college degree. I have a master's degree. But yes, kids, it's true. Your your high school diploma really doesn't matter that much, it turns out. That's so funny. What made you decide to do that? And also, do programs like that still exist? Yeah, it still exists at Mary Baldwin. There's another analogous one, uh, which actually is co-ed for kids at Simons Rock College in Western Mass. That's in Great Barrington. Uh, those are probably the two most prominent early entrance programs. Um, but you know, occasionally you'll you'll find some others. But uh, but I was motivated to do it because I really was frustrated as a teenager with my small town. This was pre-internet, and it was just very hard to access the world that I wanted to be part of. I wanted to be part of a world with culture, with opportunities. After I was 10, we had cable TV finally. But, but I mean, even before that, I mean, it was just like, okay, the three, the three networks and watching reruns in the summer and you know, my dad would get the Wall Street Journal uh, and it would be mailed to him and, and he would be reading it like three days later when it came in the mail. I mean, I just think back on my childhood and I'm like, that is so freaking sad. <laughs> I can't believe that people grew up that way, not even all that long ago. Uh, but especially the kicker for me was when I was when I was 13, I realized I was gay and I was like, I am just not going to live here. This is not the place for me to be. And so I started formulating exit plans uh, to leave North Carolina a decision uh, now vindicated by uh, by HB2, if it was not previously vindicated by the existence of Jesse Helms. And uh, one, one possible exit plan was boarding school. Another possible exit plan was North Carolina has uh, two, we'll call them boarding public magnet schools. That's probably the best way to describe them. One for math and one for the arts, and so I thought about applying to them. But my best plan was to try to get into college uh, because that cut the Gordian knot completely. And so fortunately, I was able to do that. That's great. What was the experience like? I, I thought the experience was great. I mean, I it's not for everybody, of course. Um, you know, plenty of people that I talk to say, oh, I could never have, have gone to college when I was 14. And in fact, my first uh, roommate that they assigned me was this woman named Allison, whom I hated principally because she had a fetish for ticking clocks. And in, <laughs> in our room, she had three different ticking clocks that would tick at different intervals. And it, I was going insane. And so fortunately, I didn't have to kill her because uh, she decided after Thanksgiving break that college was not for her. And so she went back to high school. Uh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Oh. <laughs> so I got a single and had no ticking clocks. So the experience was good. Why did you transfer to Smith? Well, Mary Baldwin was a, a very small school, and uh, it was small enough that if you didn't like one professor, you pretty much couldn't even take any classes in that department. Uh, you know, every, most majors, you know, had maybe two or three professors uh, who were teaching there. And so for the, for the ones that you grooved on, that was great because you could take everything, but, uh, but you, you sort of hit some limits. Also, even though just about every college 
is better than than any high school when it comes to levels of uh, acceptance of LGBT people. I mean, certainly 20 years ago, um, I was looking for a place that was a little less uh, debutante, which was kind of the the zeitgeist of Mary Baldwin at the time. And so I, I wanted to, you know, sort of go, go seven sisters. Uh, so I made it up to Smith. And how old were you when you did that? transferred at 16 and then stayed for two years and graduated when I was 18. I still can't get over it. Is this possible? That's amazing. (laughs) Um, I mean, did you feel ready for college? There's a certain developmental point that any individual has to reach when they go off on their own. They're by themselves in an institution and are taking these really intense classes with people that are older than them, at least in the case of your being at Smith. Um, So what was that like for you? I felt really ready, actually. I am not sure if this is me being accurate or um, me still being clouded with with teenage hubris. But when I look back on myself when I was 14, I actually don't think I was very different than I am today. Uh, I mean, I, I can point to virtues that I have tried assiduously to cultivate. I have tried and hopefully succeeded in, for instance, becoming more patient or, you know, things like that, uh, which I was not really good at when I was 14. But uh, but fundamentally, I was interested in the same things. I was kind of the same person. I was never interested in partying or drinking. I mean, my parents were older. I grew up without siblings. And so the standard to which I compared myself was an adult standard. Uh, so I I didn't feel like it was a stretch for me to be in college. I mean, all throughout growing up, in fact, I hated telling people how old I was because they usually thought I was older and uh, it was an embarrassment, you know, to have to tell them, oh, well, I'm, I'm actually only blah, blah, blah. So I came up with my, my own uh, language, which was usually like, well, I'm 10, but I self-identify as 13. <laughs> <laughs> Were you really using that from yeah. age 10? Something like that, yeah. Wow, impressive. So uh, I, I was a philosophy major. I um, had taken a lot of English literature classes at Mary Baldwin, which was you know, my one of my favorites as well. Uh, something I discovered at Smith and decided that I liked a lot and went on to study in graduate school was religion and theology. Uh, so at, at Smith, I found a professor that I really liked, a guy who's now retired named Carl Donfried. And so I took a class on the New Testament with him and I took a class on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that was enough to convince me uh, for my next move that I would go to divinity school. So that is what I ended up doing. Did you go directly out of college? I did. I was I was 18 and I didn't quite feel ready to get a job job. So uh, my, my parents were game to pay for me to go to graduate school. God bless them. So uh, so I, I took advantage of that and just went straight in. I, I think they, they figured, you know, they were sort of saving because I was I was out of the house early. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and which divinity school did you go to? I, I moved to Boston. and I went to Harvard Divinity School. How'd you choose it? Interestingly enough, a recruiter came to Smith. I I had never thought uh, in a million years about going to Divinity School. It was not on my radar. Um, but one day I was dawdling outside uh, outside the classroom. I had just finished class for the day, and it was very cold because it was uh, Western Mass in 
December and it was dark. It was like four o'clock and it was already dark and it was just so depressing. The thought of having to go outside and walk, you know, walk back to my dorm. And so I was, you know, sort of hanging out and psyching myself up for the cold and putting on the innumerable layers. And I was staring at the posters that were up on the, the bulletin board. And one of the posters that was up in that building, because it was, it was the, like the, religion building or where most of the religion classes were held was that there was going to be this lunchtime uh, recruitment session for Harvard Divinity School. And I had literally never thought of it. I, I th- I'm not even sure I knew that Harvard had a divinity school. And I just thought it sounded so quirky. It just sounded like, oh my God, what a weird thing to do. It just really... Uh, the absurdity of it appealed to me. I'm like, that sounds amazing, and I need to do that. Yes. <laughs> so I went to the recruitment session, and I, I just, it sounded, it sounded fantastic. And sadly, I've looked into, I've, I had a friend look into it uh, recently, and they do now require the GRE, but at the time they didn't, and I had not taken the GRE, and so this was like, you know, this was beshert. So I said, yes, this is for me. I am, I am going here. <laughs> but what beyond the quirkiness intrigued you? I mean, it's one thing to find it quirky; it's another thing to sign up for several years of of uh, divinity school, of a master's program. And which element in particular were you drawn to, or did you not know until you actually got into the program? What you of focusing on well there there were there were some rational reasons as well um i i very much enjoyed studying religion i mean the, the classes that i had taken at smith i liked a lot and i felt like it was sort of a uh, vacuum in my cultural literacy i hadn't grown up particularly religious and so i thought it was it was useful and interesting for me to learn more about it i actually thought that despite having been a philosophy major i realized i couldn't fully understand philosophy without understanding religion uh, as in so many cases the the two fit together. I mean, less so in modern times, but certainly ancient philosophy was very much tied to uh, to religion and theology. And so that was a piece of it. But also, I had always been interested in politics. And at the time that I was doing this, which was the, um, which was the late 90s, uh, the religious right was very ascendant in American political life. The Christian coalition was a huge political force. Uh, the promise keepers were in the news all the time. And I thought that it would be useful and advisable for me to become more familiar with religion and in particular their uh, theological framework and traditions so that I could better understand where they were coming from and be a more useful political advocate. That makes sense. Well, it's great that you had uh, that degree and that education. And where did it take you? What did you do after Harvard Divinity School? Well, after I finished Div School, I uh, I actually thought I was going to go into you know academia, and I had always loved school. I'd loved college campuses. I thought that was that was the place that I wanted to to be. So I was circling around trying to figure out what my field would be. And I ultimately settled on English literature because I thought that would be something, I mean, I hadn't actually ever gotten a degree in it per se, uh, because I'd done philosophy undergrad, then religion for grad school. But I thought that literature could bring in those elements, that it, that it was sort of a big enough tent that it could accommodate all of the things that I had studied before and have uh, have a new lens through which to look at the world. But I didn't really realize, I didn't really understand that the thing that makes you so very appealing 
to college admissions officers, which is that you are well-rounded and you do lots of things, you know about lots of different things. This is the thing that makes you anathema to doctoral uh, admissions committees. They do not want people that are well-rounded. Absolutely not. Because they think you are a dilettante. And so I think they looked at me and they're like, WTF, who is this person? <laughs> and so I got turned down by every single doctoral program I applied to. What? So I had to come up with a new plan very rapidly. I had no plan B. This was, you know, not at all what I had uh, expected. So that was a big surprise for me. Were you destroyed? I was not destroyed because I, I think I have good baseline mental health. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> but I was I was very I was very sad about this uh, because that that had been my plan. It really hadn't occurred to me that I would not get in at any of them. And I'm shocked. Uh, totally. You would think that having these incredible degrees would have made it for an easy in. Well, you know, the good news is that it's given me a sense of focus uh, since then, which is to try to spite academe uh, <laughs> ever since. <laughs> and and so my, my current glee and joy in life is that I started teaching college classes <laughs> as an adjunct professor and uh, not even a TA, which is what I would have been at the time, but I started teaching full-on college classes. And I did that for, you know, probably six years. And then since 2010 or 2011, I've been teaching business school classes, which I like even better because I not only don't have an MBA, I never, literally, they didn't have them at the liberal arts schools that I went to. I never even took a business class. <laughs> And so now I get to be a business school professor. So that is that brings me great joy and enables me to say, take that, academia, take that. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for you. How'd you quickly um, regroup? Or was it a quick regrouping? Did it take some time after it didn't work out for you to go to these English graduate programs? Well, I decided that, that what I clearly needed was uh, some more professional experience I had been doing internships during, you know, during my schooling, so I had some, but I, you know, I, I was 20 years old. I didn't really have any real jobs exactly, and so I decided that I would, I would focus in on some of the things that I liked, and so I, I picked a couple of things that actually did seem to have a career path that was intelligible to me, and I said, okay, well, I'll learn more about these things. I signed up uh, to do an internship that following fall for a state representative. I was living in, in Boston at the time, and so I, uh, I did this internship on Beacon Hill, which is where the state government is in Boston. And That's a nice location. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I got kind of immersed in Massachusetts politics, which was something that you know, I did for a long time. And then for what essentially would have been the spring semester, quote unquote, I spent about three months interning at Boston Magazine because I was also interested in writing and journalism. And so those two things actually turned out to be really good. I mean, it really, it really was helpful and it was the right move because for the for the following summer after that, my first sort of legit job was I got hired to be the campaign manager for the re-election effort of the state rep that I had worked for. And then after that campaign was over, I got hired for my first real, real job, which was being a political reporter. I liked journalism a lot, uh, but it was a relatively short-lived career for me because I ended up getting laid off about a year after I started my job 
interestingly enough, I relatively recently looked up this statistic, and from the year 2000, uh, which was just before I got laid off, to 2015, 42% of American journalists lost their jobs. I mean, it's just a, a decimation in the industry. And, you know, if we wonder about, you know, oh, gee, why why, why is there a proliferation of fake news now? Well, you know, I, I think we, we might have our answer because the, the hardworking men and women that were, uh, that were dedicated to trying to provide accurate information all got uh, handed pink slips. So, uh, so I, I had to kind of move, move on from there and find a, a new path. And what'd you do? So because I had been covering politics... I actually really wanted to stay as a journalist, but it was very hard for me to find another job because no one else was hiring. And uh, I ultimately got offered a job to be a spokesperson on a gubernatorial campaign. At first, I actually turned it down because I was like, no, I really want to, you know, stay trying to be a journalist. And then I'm like, this is stupid. You don't know when you're going to get hired. Like, that's ridiculous. Um, so, I, so I called him back and I ended up being a spokesperson on this gubernatorial campaign. And that kicked me into politics full time for a few years. So unfortunately, uh, I ended up with a lot of losing candidates. So I worked on that race for whatever it was, eight months, 10 months. Um, he lost. And then I spent a while trying to get myself positioned to be on, a, on the 2004 presidential cycle. Uh, I really wanted to work on a presidential campaign uh, because, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the ultimate goal for anyone who's interested in politics. You want to work on a presidential race. So I ultimately was able to finagle my way into being hired by uh, the Howard Dean campaign. And I became New Hampshire communications director for that in 2004. Oh, that's great. And then did you write out the campaign? I did. I did. I mean, also, uh, that, that ended up uh, not, not going as far as we would like. But uh, I did stay with the campaign um, until basically the end. I say basically because it was, it was really strange to witness because the campaign grew so fast. When I started, I was an early staffer. There were probably 20 people who were on board. And by less than a year later, maybe... Nine months later, we had grown to about 500 paid staffers nationwide um, with just untold numbers of volunteers. So there was this huge infrastructure. But right at the New Hampshire primary, Joe Trippi, who had been the campaign manager, got fired. And there was kind of this uh, chaos in the campaign. And I think it wasn't really clear who was, who was in charge or who was, you know, giving directions or, or, you know, what the plans were. And so we all were very much under the impression that after the New Hampshire primary, we would be given instructions by the campaign about, okay, you go to Michigan, you go to Wisconsin, you, you know, you do this, you do that. Um, here's where we need to deploy you based on the new reality on the ground. And so we were expecting that within a day or two of the New Hampshire campaign ending, we were, we were going to be packing up, we were going to be heading out to wherever we needed to head. And um, it turned out that instruction never came. Uh, we, we met with our state director the next day and no one had told her anything and she literally didn't have any information. And so she basically said, if you want to continue, you can decide what you want to do and where you would like to go. Uh, we're not totally sure we can keep paying you. Uh, we don't have the information. And 
<laughs> I was like, what is this? This is this is crazy. And so some people, you know, there's sort of various degrees of, of people drinking, drinking the Kool-Aid with the campaign. And so some people, of course, are like, well, I, I'm going to Michigan. Who wants to ride with me? We're leaving now. You know, and, and, and they're just like piling in the cars. And, and, and I'm like, you know, I, I was... This is kind of, I was 25 years old and I was like one of the older people on the campaign. And I was just like, this is bullshit. I'm not like going to a place if they're not even expecting me. I mean, I was very dedicated to the campaign and very dedicated to Howard Dean, but I was not going to sort of fling myself into a state and not have any infrastructure or sort of understand what was happening or just sort of try to insert myself someplace that that made no sense to me at all so i basically said uh if you need me i will gladly go somewhere but if 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 it's just like oh do whatever you feel like that's not really helpful so i'm going home and so the campaign ended up up folding maybe a week and a half later wow so what'd you do when you got home I decided I needed a vacation because I had not had a vacation uh, in a long time, you know, basically since I had started on the campaign. So you, you, you're you on vacation, you come home to Boston. How do we get to a career in business? Well, it was through bicycles, Jessica. I decided after the Dean campaign ended that what I wanted to do, I, I, wa- I knew I wanted to stay in Boston. All my friends were there. I had built a lot of relationships there and I had you know, spent the last year living in Vermont for a while and then in New Hampshire. And uh, I just, I wanted to kind of be back home. And so I decided I would stay in Boston and that what I wanted to do was either to be the communications director of a large nonprofit or I would run a small nonprofit. I figured that either of those things would be interesting or useful. And so I started applying for jobs. And the one that ended up coming through was I became the executive director of a very small nonprofit called the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition, uh, which is also known as Mass Bike. Uh, I used to impress a lot of people because they would hear me say it and they thought I said Mass Pike, which is the Massachusetts Turnpike Authority. And uh, I think they thought I was I was some kind of you know big uh, billion dollar badass or something. But uh, but actually we uh, we we were the, the the state bicycle advocates, and so for two years I was uh, campaigning for bike lanes. And and, uh, you know, bikes on buses and expanding the hours that bicycles were allowed on transit, you know, all these kinds of things. Do you ride here in New York? Uh, very little, very little. I mean, the truth the truth is, I was not the biggest bicyclist in the world. Um, when they asked me in for an interview, I, you know, I'd prepared, you know, all the, all the sort of standard interview questions. I was ready to go. And the question they kicked off with, you know, they were trying to like make make us feel comfortable like oh let's build some rapport and the first question they asked is so what kind of bike do you have and this of course was like not what i expected <laughs> and i said it's blue <laughs> and that was all i could say i had no idea what kind of model it was or whatever and these were all like super serious like bike geeks like they could tell you every you know brand of sprocket they had and i i literally just could not remember what kind of a bike it was i didn't i didn't have any idea and so i'm like well it's blue <laughs> and um anyway they ended up hiring me because i made a very convincing case that uh that it was it was a good thing that i didn't really know very much about bicycling because then i could translate it to the outside world and you know what they really needed were these other skills but uh but yeah it was it was a little embarrassing <laughs> 
And how do we get up to where you are currently? So right now, you're an author, you're a contributing writer to Forbes and to Time, and you speak, like I said in the introduction, at Google and the World Bank and the Gates Foundation. How did you come to build such a successful practice, and what advice would you have for others who are looking to do the same? Yeah, thank you. So so the way that I launched into my new career, my current career iteration, which I've had for the past decade now, is that while I was running Mass Bike, I realized, I had this revelation about a year into it, that despite the fact that nominally I was running a nonprofit, essentially I was running a business. I mean, every nonprofit has to turn a profit or, you know, be at least be in the black in order to continue functioning. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm running a business. I could do it for myself. And I, I just realized it was so incredibly stressful for me to run this organization because the, uh, the board really did very, very little fundraising. It was kind of all on the back of the executive director. And keeping the organization afloat, we had three employees, um, which is not huge, but like, you know, those are actual people that you need to give actual paychecks to. It was enormously stressful to me. And I thought, oh my gosh, it would be so much easier for me to run my own business. I mean, people think sometimes like, oh, being an entrepreneur is is so risky. It's so stressful. But the truth is when you're an executive director, you are responsible for raising your own paycheck. So like if you want to raise, you better earn your raise because otherwise it's not happening. And it actually felt much easier to me to just be responsible for myself as an entrepreneur. Uh, so I spent the next year trying to study how to do that. I read books, I took courses, and uh, I ended up launching it then in 2006. And so I, I first started doing marketing work, communications work. Like most people, I started with the connections that I had, reaching out to, to people who had done business with me or knew me in past iterations. But Really, I think the, the biggest differentiator for me, the, the biggest way that I was able to leverage myself to the position that I am in today, fortunately, was I realized that my business could only grow so much if it was purely on referrals and connections that I had. I figured, you know, I could I could make it a little better every year, but I could never really grow it to the size that I wanted. I was starting out knowing nice people, but honestly, most of them were in politics or they were journalists or they worked in nonprofits. They did not have a lot of money to pay me. This was not gonna be a really successful or lucrative business over the long term. It would be fine, but it wasn't where I wanted it to be. And I figured I needed to somehow raise my profile to a place where I would be able to meet a different kind of person than I was meeting currently, more powerful, um, you know, more sort of plugged, plugged into the corporate world. And so that was where I started to really double down on content creation, uh, whether that was in the form of books like Reinventing You, blogging uh, was, was kind of an early driver for me for the Harvard Business Review and other places. And I've, I've used that strategy to be able to, um, fortunately, create enough content that it creates mind share with people and has been able to to draw in inquiries for opportunities whether it's speaking or you know consulting or coaching work or things like that that have been quite valuable so if someone is looking to have the kind of success that you have and to take a business and grow it from the very seeds of an idea to a level of of 
this kind of success. Um, what do you recommend for them? I know it's a broad it's a broad question, but do you have any core pieces of advice? Well, there's a, a course, an online course that I teach called Recognized Expert, which is basically taking the principles of my book Stand Out and turning them into an interactive course format. And one of the key tenets that I talk about in it is that fundamentally when it comes to becoming a recognized expert, to, to really being known as among the best in your field, which is what's necessary, of course, to attract really good offers and opportunities, whether they're job offers or consulting offers, speaking offers, you know, what, whatever it is that you're after, you want to be publicly recognized by others for your talents. And in order to do that, there are three fundamental things that you need. The first is content creation. The second is social proof. And the third is your network. And my advice is for people to, to really think about their own lives and of these three uh, areas, where are you strong and where are you weak? And are you able to take some steps to shore up the areas of weakness? Because if you can be really strong in at least two, that is fantastic. If you can be you know, pretty strong in all three, that's, that's even better because it really creates a lot of positive attention that draws people to you. But basically the content creation, number one, is about sharing your ideas publicly. And you know, it's just a basic fact. If you don't share your ideas, whether it's in the form of writing articles or books or giving speeches or whatever, people will not know what your ideas are. <laughs> it's sort of a necessary uh, precondition that you need to, to be getting your ideas out there so that people can hear it and say, oh, that's so smart. That's really great. I like how she thinks I've got to hire her. That's number one. Number two is social proof, which basically means are there markers of credibility that you can assemble around yourself that makes it easy for people to say, oh, I should listen to her. She, uh, she's not a crackpot, you know, and, and that could be lots of different things. It could be where you went to school. It could be uh, that you have uh, that you have published a book. It could be that you blog regularly for certain publications. It could be that you're uh, the head of a professional association. It could be that maybe you used to work at a company that everybody respects. You know, things things like that. Those are great forms of social proof. Third and finally is your network, uh, which is helpful for many reasons. Uh, one is that you are to the point of social proof, judged by the people you surround yourself with. But but also your network is important because they are your ambassadors. They are the people who can help you spread the word about your ideas and get it out there. So if you can work on those three areas, that I think is really what is essential in terms of building your own platform, building your brand. Love it. In our final few minutes, I just want to ask a final question or two. Do you have any goals for yourself for this new year? I'm I'm a big uh, goal person, actually. Uh, although I try I try to limit it strategically. I actually did a piece that I published recently in the Harvard Business Review called uh, "Don't Set Too Many Goals for Yourself," and I think that one of the things that handicaps people in a lot of ways is that. To a certain extent, they almost confuse goals in their to-do list. Like they'll come up with this list of like like ten goals, and it's that's just way too many. You can't keep your eyes on that many prizes simultaneously. And so, a discipline that I have instituted is that I try first of all 
Uh, I don't set goals for the entire year. I set six-month goals, and then I will decide mid-year if I want to re-up them or change to a different goal. That's number one. Number two is that I try to set no more than two professional goals. I, I like to say I'll set no more than three goals, and two of them can be professional, and then one can be a personal goal. So this year, for instance, for the first six months of 2017, uh, one goal for me is that I am going to do a launch with affiliate partners for my recognized expert course. So that's a big thing happening in March that I'm working on. Uh, another you know, big professional goal that I'm doing is to finalize the, uh, the copy, to finalize the text of my next book, which is coming out in the fall. So I need to finish that writing process. And, you know, for the latter half of 2017, I'll be focused on the marketing of it. But for now, it's like, okay, let's get the writing teed up. Uh, so th that's sort of how I think of it. I try to never have more than two major priorities at a time. I think that's really smart advice. We're in January. It's the very start of the year. How do you keep yourself on point with staying motivated to accomplish your goals throughout the year? And what advice do you have for others? Well, I, I think there's a, a few different ways that people can do it. I mean, when it comes to keeping yourself motivated for goals, you have to know your own psychology to a certain extent. I mean, what what works for you? Uh, many people try accountability partners. Working out at the gym, for instance, it's uh, it's one thing for you to say, oh, I'm going to stay in bed. It's it's like a whole another level of rudeness if you're going to meet a friend there and then you don't show up. And so if you've locked yourself into that, uh, you, you might not want to do it, but you don't want to be a jerk to your friend. So coming up with structures that hold you accountable is useful. I mean, another one people have tried to great success is there's this website called stick.com. It's S-T-I-C kk.com and you essentially uh, put out a, a wager, a financial wager, that if you do not complete a certain goal, and, and the key is that you're actually supposed to make it hurt. You're supposed to make it big. Uh, if you do not complete a goal, then your uh, your money that you've set aside in escrow will be donated to a charity you hate. So that's a pretty good way. <laughs> That'll definitely keep you on point. <laughs> With your goals. <laughs> yes. So for, for me personally, thankfully, I don't necessarily need to resort to those things. But um, what, what actually just keeps me motivated really is um, I use it as a filtering device. And the goals, I'm able to work toward the goals because the goals provide a useful tool for simplification for me. Uh, because when I get a million requests in my inbox or people who want things or whatever, I will just ask myself if that activity supports the overall goal. And if yes, great, I'll do it. If not, I will defer it or delay it or I'll turn it down. Um, but it, it gives me a way to focus and decide what tasks I should be doing on a given day. That's perfect. Uh, Dory Clark, this is such useful advice. I have had the best time talking to you and learning about your journey and how you've gotten to this point in your path. And you have pivoted a lot over the years and you're very young and have a lot in front of you. So it'll be fun to watch. Thank you so much. All the best with 2017 and what you're up to. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. Thank you for listening.